0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking green hydrogen and its industrial applications. Hydrogen made in the steam reformer is responsible for around 3% of global emissions. When you add in other industrial applications, such as steel production, we're talking almost 10%. It would make a huge difference just switching those industrial applications over to green hydrogen. The problem, of course, is the cost, both the operating expenses and the capex, and particularly some of the supply chain challenges around the key materials that will need to go into electrolyzers. Here to discuss green hydrogen and its industrial applications, how it's made, the challenges and the opportunities, is Chad Mason. Chad is the CEO and founder of Advanced Ionics, an early stage business focused on providing lower cost green hydrogen solutions to the industrial sector. And Chad has a deep background across clean tech, including fuel cell technology, lithium ion batteries, and now hydrogen. As always, you can really support the show by leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on. On the Apple app, if you just scroll down, it says write a review. I'd really appreciate one there. It really does support the show and drive the algorithms to continue to help us get great guests. And as always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Chad, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, steel helmets on, we're about to talk hydrogen again. Um, and, and, And the story really about... The uses of hydrogen today and, and in the future and industrial hydrogen and and how we get to a, a decarbonized solution there. And on the way, talk about where perhaps our learnings over the last few years have, have developed in terms of where hydrogen can and will be deployed both economically and and, and feasibly in a physical sense. Before we sort of embark, I think it'd be really useful in this case to get a a, a quick background from you on on who you are, Chad, uh, and your career that, that, I guess, so we're all on the same page about why you can talk to these things.
1: Yeah, for sure. I grew up on a family farm in central North Dakota. I became quite interested in sustainability in general when I was in middle school. And at that time, I learned about hydrogen and Of course, I understood how it was used in the ammonia we put into our fields for our crops and used to make a lot of the chemicals we used and goes into the fuels that we use on the farm. So I had an early interest in that, had an early interest in electrochemistry and decided to make a career out of it. Uh, So I I did a master's degree in um, fuel cell technology, then went over and spent some time in Singapore working on sodium and Lithium-ion battery technologies came back worked at General Motors in the PEM fuel cell durability team and then I decided to start Advanced Ionics and really help to address the big challenges with industrial decarbonization.
0: Perfect. So a career, you know, spanning the I guess some of the the, the pivotal technology of the energy transition and I think that's going to weave its way in as we start to talk about hydrogen. Yeah. Can you just just so it's been a year or so since we've last done an episode on hydrogen? Can you just get us all on the same page? Just the basics, you know, what sort of the, the the broad outline of the theory and why it's posed as a decarbonization solution?
1: Yeah, I think everything from a year ago that episode is still rings true. Basically, hydrogen today is used, you know, ninety plus percent of it in really just two industries: petrochemicals and ammonia. And it's almost always produced on site and immediately used in these industrial chemical reactions. And that's, that's about all there is to it. It's very unclean. Most of it is made from fossil gas. In some countries, such as China, they use coal gasification. Very little is actually made in a, in a clean, sustainable way that has no carbon dioxide emissions as a byproduct
0: yeah and then in
1: in context
0: of the energy transition, hydrogen is, is seen as sort of this uh, the Swiss Army knife. but you know, what is green hydrogen? Just can you you know why is that so prominent in uh, in energy transition discussions?
1: Why is it so prominent? Good question. well, it, it's clean. It's basically the best, most straightforward pathway to zero carbon hydrogen. And the promise of it is quite nice because you take renewables or other forms of clean electricity and, uh, you make hydrogen from it and then you go on and use it in whatever process you need it for. The Swiss army knife thing is, is quite interesting. I think Paul says it better than, than I do, but basically it's, uh, jack of all trades master of none type of thing is how i think about it
0: (laughs) but this is paul martin we should reference who we've had on the show so but basically yes the theory is you use renewable electricity you basically charge the elect the electrolyzer which we're going to come on to which is important part of this story and you create hydrogen and then you can burn the hydrogen and your your emission is water yeah and that's and you know and in that context um it has been seen as a solution in transportation in all types of industry and obviously household heating and all this other stuff right it's it's certainly been very prominent because in part it's it's very intelligible and, you know, it, it seems, you know, when you you look at prima facie, it seems to be a, a phenomenal solution, but uh, the devil is in the detail. So we're going to get there, but let's yeah. go back to black hydrogen. So this is, in, you know, the industrial uses of hydrogen, it's highly in, fossil intensive, and it's not transported very far. Can you just, how, why is it black? And why is hydrogen often produced in the same location it's used?
1: well it's produced in the same location because it's hard to transport it's hard to store so the things that it's made from usually from fossil gas but also mentioned coal and other fossil fuel resources they're all very easy to transport they have high energy density so it's it's much simpler to produce the hydrogen on site from those fossil fuel resources
0: before we get started On black hydrogen. Can you just give us some sense of the scale and importance of steam reformers of of black hydrogen to greenhouse gases?
1: Yeah, so what's often done is they'll do something called steam methane reforming, SMR for short, not to be confused with small modular nuclear in that industry. But uh, basically, what you do is you take water, make steam out of it, and you combine it with fossil gas methane in most cases and that produces hydrogen and carbon dioxide as a a byproduct so of course that carbon dioxide is what we want to eliminate from these industrial sectors and and abate those emissions right now it's a little under three percent total emissions worldwide is directly attributable to to hydrogen so one deal with that and then two You start to add in a few other applications such as the steel market moving away from coal and coke as the reducing agent to to green hydrogen so you add another six or so percent and then a few other sectors so where we see it is generally just very round ballpark numbers as directly abating about 10 percent of all emissions worldwide through the use of green hydrogen you'll see those numbers very widely depending on who you talk to or which market research report you read but that that's what we calculate
0: there's a lot of discussion around hydrogen in transportation and obviously the the hydrogen infrastructure that would be needed to be built to support fuel cell technology etc cetera, etc cetera, which obviously you spent a significant part of your career on before we sort of dig into the color of the hydrogen and, and sort of specifically green where are we at in in Fuel cell technology, and are there viable, realistic solutions to long-distance transportation of hydrogen as it stands, or, or what are the alternatives? Can you just—I think we'd love to get your insight on that.
1: Yeah, it was interesting when, you know, doing a master's in, in in fuel cells and catalysts specifically. Also worked on gas diffusion layers, and then that was about 2008 to 2010. Coming back to it at General Motors, I was quite surprised to see just how far the technology had advanced. And in fact, I think everybody who was a major OEM working on fuel cell technology, it was light years more advanced than I think where academic literature was at. So that part caught me a little off guard and surprised me. It was exciting to work on. It's fun. The electrochemist in me loves it. It's it's super fun technology to work on. But uh, honestly, I I became a bit disillusioned with it because I didn't see it solving any actual problems that needed to be solved. So yeah, then when when I basically looked at at what had to be addressed, it was quite obvious that I needed to take my career kind of back to where I thought about it as a kid, which is solving the electrolysis challenge. And just
0: to dig into that a little bit more, because I think it is instructive why did you become disillusioned and, and sort of what was the problem that was trying to be solved that didn't need to be solved and, and where does it stand in terms of, you know, even if there are sort of the believers out there for hydrogen in transportation, there seems to be massive hurdles around how you actually get a, well, continued hurdles to to make it support widespread use of a cost that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and this, this isn't necessarily reflective of what GM's strategy was, but I think where Various companies were going with fuel cell tech at that time. And even in some cases now is in light duty cars. And in 2015, despite, you know, seeing what it very, and working on a very advanced fuel cell system, it didn't matter. It just like the economics of it made no sense whatsoever. Once I dug into it. So at that time, I believe that there was still some opportunity for fuel cell tech and heavy duty applications. And it was nice that I'd worked in the battery field, so I had an appreciation for both technologies. But, you know, today my view is that, uh, you know, even in the heavy duty transportation, I think there will be a few niche uses of the fuel cell. But I just don't see a lot of evidence that it really accomplishes anything in almost any any transportation sector you know across the board (laughs) is is that is that physics or is that economics well a bit of both there's an interplay between the two (laughs) yeah i mean it's a bit of both i mean the physics part of it is hydrogen's terrible to store and transport that isn't changing and you can't change the physics of your energy efficiency losses there either and You know, and I think Paul hit it nicely, too, in your episode a year ago. There's also an effectiveness issue with hydrogen as as a fuel. It's just not a very effective fuel. The economics, of course, gets back to that efficiency question. And yeah, I mean, it's very expensive to produce hydrogen. So why would you waste it in other places when you have to deal with all of the existing uses of hydrogen?
0: Okay, well, let's take that and apply that to green hydrogen, right? So it, we, whatever application we're using it in, in, in this case, we're really talking about trying to solve the main issue, which is turning black hydrogen into green hydrogen. But as green hydrogen stands today, can you just go a little bit more into the chemistry of how it's actually made and the alternative options there between hot and cold electrolyzers, and yeah. help us understand just how expensive it is and both in in the units that are used within the industry but then try and contextualize that against i guess other sources of power for us
1: yeah so as far as how it works you have basically electricity and you provide that to an anode and a cathode so on the anode side which is positive in this case you produce oxygen and then on the cathode which is negative you produce that hydrogen. You can do that with liquid water. You can do it with water, vapor, or steam. And then you separate that hydrogen and oxygen. It's already on two separate electrodes, so it's easy to send them both to different uh, places. And then you can utilize both that hydrogen and that oxygen for various commercial applications. As far as how to think about the economics of it, Let's call it a run of the mill, very average electrolyzer will use about 50 kilowatt hours to make one kilogram of hydrogen. And so all you really have to do is say, well, what's the price of my electricity? If it's two cents per kilowatt hour, multiply that by 50 and you get $1 is the price to produce that hydrogen, not including the price of the equipment, the capex of it, your operations and maintenance costs, along with other costs. So that's, that's the real basics of calculating the price of your, of your hydrogen.
0: And, and what does one kilogram of hydrogen represent?
1: Um, well, it depends on the context of what you want to use it for. So, for example, um, it takes about nine kilograms of water to make a kilogram of hydrogen. And then usually you'll basically take that that kilogram of hydrogen and then make things with it, such as ammonia. So NH3 is the formula for ammonia, or you'll make methanol, or you'll use it to reduce iron oxide. So Fe2O3 or Fe3O4 to make pure iron. So that, that's really the basics of it.
0: If, if I were to put a kilogram of uh, hydrogen into my fuel cell, how, how far would I go?
1: Yeah, about one kilogram of hydrogen will take you about sixty miles or one hundred kilometers in a Toyota Mirai uh, fuel cell car, for example.
0: That sounds obviously incredibly cheap, right? A, a dollar for a, a, a kilogram of hydrogen, but that's not the case in the real world, I assume, because that's, that's correct. Like, this, this is why it's not seeing widespread mass adoption immediately, right? Yeah. You sort of so so why is green hydrogen so expensive? And, and where does that cost come from? How much is the, the, the capex, et cetera?
1: Yeah, so the industry slowly but surely is heading towards about a $200 to make a unit that does a kilogram per day. So $200 per kilogram per day. Often you'll hear this figure cited as dollars per kilowatt or dollars per megawatt or gigawatt, uh, which I don't like because the more inefficient your electrolyzer is, the cheaper it looks on paper. So, we at advanced onix don't use that metric, and then the bigger problem is, as I mentioned a little while ago that I was saying assuming two cents a kilowatt hour, well, that's at a hundred percent capacity factor, so there's not many renewables that are at that capacity factor without a lot of battery backup, so you're looking at anywhere between thirty to you know if you get really generous, a bit above fifty some percent capacity factors for renewables projects, best case scenarios. What you need to do to overcome that is you have to put in more electrolyzers and only run them when you actually have solar or wind resources that are available. Yeah, and then on top of that, usually you're not gonna get two cents per kilowatt hour. Um, Numbers that I often see used in industry by people who aren't trying to hide things is usually more in the three or four cents per kilowatt hour range. And then getting to your example for the car, you have to figure out how to compress it, transport it, and then deliver it to your car. Each of those steps results in an energy efficiency loss and a cost due to the capex and due to the electricity to do each of these conversions. So by the time it gets delivered to a car at a station, it gets very, very expensive. Um, and someone could probably look up what they're what a California hydrogen refueling station cost is, is, and it's not very pretty.
0: Yeah, just looking at today's numbers, it's sort of 5 to $7 a, a kilogram at the, at the pump, yep. which obviously puts it you know, way behind uh, gasoline and there, therefore lies the challenge, yep. you know, e- even if it is even more widespread in availability. The HC Insider Podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence, and advisory firm Focus solely on the global energy and commodity sector, with six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Just talking about these electrolyzers, I understand it as well. You've got sort of, there's the cold way of doing it where you use lots more electricity, and there's the hot way of doing it where you, you superheat the the electrolyzer and it makes it more efficient. Can you help us understand that piece? Because obviously it's an important part of, of yeah. advanced ionics.
1: It just comes down to basic thermodynamics of the electrolysis of water process. So you basically need about 39.4 kilowatt hours to make a kilogram of hydrogen and that's uh, electricity and heat combined and you can't you can't do any better than that that that's your thermodynamic limit so when you feed liquid water to a system you're basically starting at that point and then you have to deal with all of your inefficiencies on top of that so practically speaking you're looking at electrolyzer energy uses anywhere between 45 up to 65 kilowatt hours to make a kilogram of hydrogen. Now you can you can play some tricks and use more heat in the process to basically reduce the amount of electricity you need. And so one of the simplest ways to do that is use available waste heat or process heat from exothermic chemical processes make water vapor, make steam with it, and feed that to the electrolyzer. That way you can actually use less electricity down to the 30 kilowatt hour per kilogram range, and then the rest of that uh, energy is supplied by heat. So high temperature, known as solid oxide electrolyzers, do this very well. They run usually about 700 to 800 degrees Celsius, and then they use uh, a reasonable amount of, of heat to supplement the amount of electricity needed to run that system, so that's cold and hot in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I assume you know heating something to eight hundred degrees C defeats the purpose of trying to achieve yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the end goal of decarbonization. I would would I be correct on that?
1: Yeah, you have to play some some additional tricks to make that work well. You have to heat it up to seven or eight hundred, and then you essentially try to recover that heat on the back end and feed it back to the steam input on the front end. And then you have to deal with basically more losses. You have to put more insulation into the system, heat trace better. You have to use more expensive ceramics, high nickel alloys, things like that. So you have to jump through a lot of hoops to do electrolysis at seven or 800 degrees Celsius. So even though yeah. the process is very efficient, it's very elegant, very attractive on paper, there are Basically, quite a few system level challenges that are you're, you're really running up against a wall addressing those.
0: And, and and even then, on the cold electrolysis, you're still using expensive materials like platinum and, and so forth, right? I mean, yeah. these are, we're, we're not just talking water here, right? We're, these are expensive electrolyzers and, and, and difficult to produce. Is that a fair statement?
1: Yeah, it's it's my personal opinion that it's a critical flaw with not all low temperature technologies, but specifically proton exchange membrane. The use of platinum, the bigger problem is really the use of iridium and then also the use of fluoropolymers, of which the the processing of is starting to raise quite a few red flags due to the PFOS issues that are out there. So out of all of those, the iridium issue, I think if I was sitting in the seat producing PEM systems, I would be most concerned about. So there's a good reason that there's technologies that that avoid that problem. Mm. And sorry, for your layman, what, what's wrong with iridium? So iridium is predominantly um, extracted in South Africa, and it's quite expensive. So there's limited amounts of it available. It basically uh, has come to the earth from, I think, meteorites, if I remember right, and so these deposits are highly localized in just a few places. So, a big thing we we look at quite a bit in our industry is supply chain risk, and that's a big, that's a big one. Okay, so so
0: thanks for that. So a couple of more questions. So, firstly, where are we at on you know on the how much investment is going into electrolyzers? Are there is it foreseeable that there are breakthroughs ahead, or are we sort of already kind of at the Diminishing return moment of of technological investment, and we're we just bumping up against thermodynamics and the relative size of the periodic table. I hate to
1: take the more pessimistic view. It, it is a very exciting industry overall, and I think what we're doing here is certainly a breakthrough. But I would certainly spin it as a way of just doing what thermodynamics tells us to do. Already, you know, there's not a lot of breakthroughs to be had, even though they're often touted that way, catalyst advancements or membrane advancements, while really cool (laughs) and very useful and important, nothing changes the game because nothing changes thermodynamics. So as an industry, we need to continue to advance the ball forward quite a bit as far as reducing costs, reducing the use of, of key materials, but there's no breakthrough to be had there. Electrolysis has been around for 150 some years. Okay, so
0: roughly speaking, and again, this is something that we sort of the story that we've been telling on the podcast around this is that sort of the hydrogen's becoming somewhat the god of the gaps in in, in the sense of you know it's, it's ever decreasing footprint on all of the future use cases simply as a result as of efficiency and effectiveness as as we've highlighted, but you've got this elephant in the room around. Huge industrial processes using hydrogen with a very carbon intensive footprint. It's unlikely, I assume, that costs are going to go anytime soon, the, the costs at which would make black hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there. What correct. market incentives, what incentives are there in place for your average refiner, chemicals manufacturer to switch to green hydrogen? Is this simply based off? 2030, 2050 goals, and we've sort of just seen the good actors wanting to do this and potentially creating a a cost challenge for themselves down the line. I mean, why are companies trying to switch and and how real are those incentives?
1: This is where Europe has led the way traditionally. There's been the ETS scheme in place. And so quite a few of our conversations and partnerships have been on the, the European side. And there has been somewhat of a public push too. So I think companies over there feel some amount of responsibility to do it, even absent the ETS scheme, but it's been moving forward there for quite some time. There's been a few others that are quite interesting, such as the, the work on decarbonized steel also. So there's been some separate incentives that have been put in place for that also. In the US, I mean, I think everybody knows by now about the IRA. That really juiced the interest for green hydrogen in the United States. The problem there, that fortunately I think is going to be addressed, is it was really a production level incentive. So everyone who's a project developer is thinking, great, I can get $3 per kilogram. Hydrogen on my project, but wait a minute, where does that hydrogen go? <laughs> Who's off taking it <laughs> and where? So I think recently the administration announced some new incentives for demand side stimulation, which is really good, and it's something I've been talking about now for for a little while. nonetheless, I still you know everybody who has a leg up at least from my viewpoint is is european because their teams are much more built out their strategies are much more built out and i think they're in just a better position to do quite well in, in the green hydrogen market but um i'm hoping everybody else catches up for sure
0: okay well let's before we talk a little bit about where you see future trends both in in cell technology as well as you know hydrogen itself tell us about advanced ionics and your company which you founded and the, the elegant solution that you've created to splice the difference between this, this sort of hot and cold uh, electrolyzer and the, the, therefore the cost of green hydrogen in these industrial applications.
1: You know, I was talking about solid oxide, high temperature technology, and one could ask, well, what if it didn't have all those problems? So that, that's basically what we set out to do is say, well, how do we make an electrolyzer that still uses water vapor or steam? works basically with industrial processes, so has synergy with them, and takes advantage of, of the heat that's available from all of these exothermic systems that are on site at refineries and ammonia plants and steel plants. And so that, that's basically what, what we've done here. We brought in a very multidisciplinary team, quite unique team of people who have expertise in all of these different sectors, and we've developed a technology that really has those OPEX advantages of solid oxide technology, so low electricity use. And then also having the CAPEX advantages, both on the stack side and then also on the balance of plant as the lower temperature technologies, uh, such as alkaline systems that are already at very large scale and have been around for hundred years. So basically, what we tell people is getting the best of both worlds: low opex and low capex in a system that's really designed quite specifically for industrial operators, people who want to augment their existing fossil gas-based hydrogen production and then eventually replace it.
0: Yeah, and what is it, and where do you end up? In can you help sort of orientate us towards cost compared to your traditional solutions, it be it hot or cold?
1: We're basically heading towards below $200 per kilogram per day on the CapEx side for the stack. Um, Balance of plant, basically, we're not ready to talk numbers on that yet, but what's nice about the system is we use all off-the-shelf components, mostly stainless steel components that are already commodity. Uh, So it's a very friendly balance of plant to work with. And uh, yeah, and then basically some of the other aspects on the CAPEX is the stack is essentially made of, of common materials, stainless steels predominantly, some nickels and some other simple metals and metal oxides. So very, very attractive from both a supply chain, supply risk standpoint, just a general CAPEX standpoint. And then on the OPEX side, basically having that a low electricity use like solid oxide systems too in the 30 to 40 kilowatt hour per kilogram range on the electricity use side, and that's supplemented with the heat in the steam that's available from the industrial site. So there's that nice kind of plug-in synergy, and industrial users of hydrogen already do this. They know how to build these type of, of facilities. So it's very easy for us to have a conversation with them, and for them to think about how do you replace that steam methane reformer with an advanced ionics electrolyzer.
0: Hmm. And what? Are, well, first uh, two questions. One is where is the company at in its journey, and and secondly, I guess the crucial question is when you're when you're in the boardroom or you know talking to the the leaders of these facilities. I mean, are, are they, you know are you seeing that uptake in you know, in the context of the IRA and in you know mm-hmm. and the willingness to do this? I mean, I imagine whilst it's 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 relatively simple and it's relatively familiar technology compared to some others. I assume this is still a big lift to to switch over.
1: It's uh, been pretty easy for us to actually have this conversation with industrial users of hydrogen because they, they just get it immediately. The IRA certainly helped, I think, for us because we were already talking with industrial users of hydrogen. It didn't change the dynamic as much for us as maybe it did for other companies, especially those that work more on the pro with the project developer side of things. Um, so I found that quite fascinating and interesting as far as where we are as a, as a company, we're rapidly growing. We're about 22 people right now. We'll be about 40 people by this time next year. And we, we started almost from scratch, you know, basically, uh, two of us just, uh, in late 2020. So we've come a long way in, in a pretty short amount of time to, to bring this brand new technology together. And uh, we're, we're, we're going to be doing a, a kind of first stepping stone stack level demonstration with Repsol early next year. And then we'll be having some more announcements with, with other major partners here quite soon. So very exciting times, but uh, quite a bit of work left to do by our team. Yeah, fantastic. And you remain privately owned? Yeah, venture capital, um, strategic, and uh, of course, existing employees. Mm. Fantastic. Well, before we
0: before we let you go, and it's been a, it has been really interesting to sort of understand a bit more about the actual sort of process of creating hydrogen. As we sort of stand today, and you look maybe another three years hence, or, or five years hence, you know, what do you think the future of of, of hydrogen is? Because it, it's still. It still seems very much a live debate. It still is very active in, in investor packs and so forth and yeah you know, yeah the, the the swiss army knife is is alive and well, and I just wonder whether we're, I'm being too pessimistic or, or you know what's your sort of take is this you know is this the well, I'll let you answer the question
1: yeah <laughs> you teed it up well uh for us it's just it's really exciting on the industrial hydrogen side because we see our technology basically taking over the whole industrial green hydrogen market. And that's a really bright future because it means we'll have decarbonized steel, decarbonized sustainable aviation fuels made from biological feedstocks, green ammonia, green precursors and materials that are used in in everyday life, clean glass and silicon, all those things. So for us, it's it's just an incredibly exciting time. But yeah, there does need to be some course correction as far as this hydrogen, everything everywhere type of talk, because really the goal is we have dirty hydrogen in heavy industry. Let's decarbonize it. So it's, it's that simple for us as a company here at Advanced Dionics. Fascinating.
0: Well, it is, you know, I, I wish you the, the very best. And uh, yeah, as, as, you, as you just highlighted, you know, green hydrogen has a, a bright future and a really important future. And, and it's solving, yeah, these industrial applications. And, uh, and hopefully, your technology will play a big part in that. So, Chad, I really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate you having me and uh, happy, happy to help anytime. Thank
0: you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.